I think that's the thing that got me when I went to Far North Queensland, and and it's what I absolutely love about the Pilbara. It sears into your heart to be in such expansive country. It puts everything into perspective. I don't want to say things are insignificant, but it helps you and makes you realise how vast this land and this world is. This is Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. Hello and welcome back. I'm Sky Manson, your host for this episode. We have missed you. We are delighted to be bringing you the story of Nicola Forrest AO today. To describe Nicola in just a few words is incredibly difficult. She's a mother, philanthropist, change maker, and a country girl born and bred. Alongside her husband, Andrew Forrest of Fortescue Medals Group, Nicola is the co-chair and the co-founder of Mindaroo Foundation and a director of the Tatarang Group. She campaigns to better the lives of children and the vulnerable, but she also drives advances in the arts and community sectors and for the equality of women. Her story is many things. It's aspirational and I hope you find it inspirational. But most of all, the reason that we wanted to tell Nicola's behind-the-scenes story is because it is relatable. Nicola Forrest could have been any one of us. She grew up on a farm in Spices Creek in central west New South Wales, had a penchant for agriculture, and on travelling to remote north Queensland for a sniff of adventure, she fell in love with the outback and eventually Andrew Forrest. This is the story of Nicola Forrest as a young girl and as a mother. And a warning, this episode does speak about the loss of a child. If this may be triggering for yourself or anyone you know, please call Lifeline on 131114. I started by asking her to give me a taste of what their conversations were like around the family dinner table. <laughs> um, well, I can. I, it's it's pretty hard to get a word in. Um, I've always been known as a talker, and um, I think our children have all absolutely inherited that. So it's always an enthusiastic conversation about the topic of the day, or what someone might have just learned at university, and or what we might be doing on the weekend. So there's always um, a great assembly around the dinner table. It's always a celebration. And is it often that you are together? Because you, uh, Andrew and yourself, leave such busy lives. Um, do, do you prioritise coming together as a family like that? We really do try. But obviously, I mean, my, my children have grown up and have two have left home and our son's just graduated from university. So um, he's probably going to be leaving next year. It's, it becomes harder to bring people together. But in the last nine months, we've had my 93-year-old father-in-law living with us, um, albeit independently in, in a separate part of the house. But we've tried to have many meals with him, and that's been so special. We've had more time with him in this last nine months than we would have in the last year, few years. Yeah, that's such a another silver lining story that's come from this COVID situation that we've all lived through and 
a beautiful connection for your family. I want to ask Absolutely. you, you are so motivated to do better for the lives of children everywhere. But as a mother, what is it that you are trying to instill first and foremost in your own children? <laughs> oh, to obey the rules. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> listen um, to me. <laughs> listen to me. Um, do you know, I think the most important skills that we can give our children and certainly and we have done this with ours I believe I feel it's one of the things I'm really proud of is to instill empathy and also resilience because I do think that those two qualities help all of us face the problems that life throws at other people empathy gives you an, a chance to try and walk in other people's shoes and not be judgmental but understand why they might be where they are and then resilience to help you get through it or help your friends get through something and you know I think they're traits that you know if we go back to the early years which you were saying I champion these are the sort of social and emotional skills that are that are learned and taught in those early years that help carry children through in those later later years where things get a bit tougher. Absolutely. And what's your take on teaching resilience? Because as someone from your generation and even from my generation, it was not something that we um, were conscious of developing sort of physically as a muscle, even though it's a mental thing. And and so how do you try and teach that to those around you? Well, I think it's really pertinent that we're talking about life on the land because I do think that it is instilled as part of growing up on the land it's part of your everyday because you see life and death with animals that you're dealing with you're having to cope with things that don't go according to plan and and so you have to learn to adapt and cope and that is what creates resilience it's things not going the way you want and I and I do think in the world we live in now all parents want to give their children everything they can and the best start in life. That's, you know, I think that's a given. But what about when you can? It's actually not necessarily doing them any favours. That if you give children everything that they want, then they don't know how about delayed gratification. They don't understand that don't just always get what you want. And these are the really simple things that I think do build resilience. When things are not going a bit tough for your children and you want to step in, sometimes it's important not to. I'm not saying that they're in harm's way. But, you know, we all learn from our own mistakes much better than someone else trying to protect us from them. I'd love to know, uh, uh, thank you so much for mentioning that, you know, your your life on the land and what you've learned from that. What was it, what was your life like on the land? Maybe what was the scene around your own dinner table as a child at home in Spices Creek in the central west of New South Wales, which it was a... Um, it was a mixed farming operation with sheep and cattle and cropping. And I know that at times your father and your uncle did contract harvesting and your father was a polo player. And then your mother was a, a real creative at heart who was busy managing four children, yourself and your three siblings. But so what was that scene like around that dinner table, similar to your um, own now? Oh, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm number three of three girls that my parents had three girls under three years of age so imagine picture that I don't think there was much sitting around the table then (laughs) and then my brother came along five five and a half years later when we moved into the big house that was so exciting because 
we all had our own bedrooms because my parents lived in a little cottage for the first five years on the on the farm. My grandparents had also lived there. And the kitchen there had a, an agar stove. And that was, you know, it was the heart of the home, really. So we ate a lot of meals around the kitchen table, unless, of course, we had visitors and we had a beautiful dining room table and would always be set up with the silver and beautiful. And so we did use that quite a bit, the dining room table. But again, my father was not a man of few words, really, but um, he had a great sense of humour. And so we did tend to have meals around the table. I think we went through a stage when television, I remember when we got a, a television and we were allowed to watch GTK for 10 minutes, which was before <laughs> Bellbird, which was my favourite show on television, <laughs> got into the soapies then. But dinner was definitely almost 100% lamb from any form because that's what we ate. So lots of roast, lamb chops, lamb's fry, you know, all sorts of things. So we had a lot of lamb, a lot of vegetables from the garden. My mother had an amazing vegetable garden. Very healthy food. So it's obviously... And good manners. Sorry, and good manners were always expected. We, you know, I grew up with um, two great grandmothers till I was fourteen. They didn't live with us, but they visited regularly. And my grandparents, you know, they were all of that generation. Where have you sat back up straight, look me in the eye, speak nicely, get your elbows off the table? We were brought up with very strict manners, which I have carried through to our children as well. What a gift to have grandparents, and then two great grandparents. Tell me about what you you were able to sort of learn from them and I suppose it is very much in hindsight that you can appreciate that more look I I mean I could go on for a long time but there are snippets you know of pearls of wisdom that you're able to hear from from a different generation I you know I'm I'm looking forward to being a grandmother myself not that that's anywhere in the pipeline at this stage (laughs) but um I I had a fantastic relationship with my grandmothers and they could say things to me that I didn't take offense to and somehow they they planted a seed you'd like just enjoy because I had older sisters just enjoy being the age you are you know don't try and rush your life enjoy every bit of it little things like that which doesn't sound like much but at the time that it was said to me was actually profound because I think I had spent a lot of my time trying to keep up with my sisters and catch up with them and you know I was trying to grow up too quickly (laughs) yes yes absolutely I think most Children who fall third in the pecking order would attest to that. They're just trying to keep up all the time. I also played lots of games. My mother did not like games. She was a gardener and a cook and a creative, amazing creative, but games were not her forte. And I played lots of card games and Scrabble and games like that with my both my grandmothers. Such a gift. So tell me a little bit more about your mother and her creative side. What, what were her main creative interests? Look, she was an artist and she could paint beautifully. She taught herself to sculpt. And then I, and I remember dad made her um, an electric pottery wheel because she started doing pottery. She started a bit of an art gallery with a group of other people in Wellington in a beautiful old building and there used to be exhibitions there. So there was always, we were always doing creative things. But she was also an entrepreneur. And I think this speaks to a lot of women on the land that, you know, or anyone on the land, but we're talking about women today, um, that, you know, you have to make do with what you've got. And mum, I remember, because she was very conscious of health and wanting us to have a great start, she really wanted us to have, she wanted to milk a cow. And dad said, well, we're not having a milking cow unless you milk it. And she said, well, absolutely. Okay. She committed to that. And I remember going with mum in the old um, Toyota with the 
crate on the back, you know, the old tray back Toyotas. Mm. And we had a crate on the back. And we picked up this old milking cow from a dairy in town. And first attempt, her name was Mary. And actually, she had one blind eye. I'll never forget oh. it because it was actually quite traumatizing. <laughs> we loaded this cow up the race and onto this truck. And it didn't actually have a, a, a roof on the on the crate on the back. And the cow kept going and jumped straight out over the top and down onto the bonnet. And <laughs> oh, and I don't know, I was probably eight or nine. And remember, you know, being absolutely traumatized. By, I think I was sitting in the front of the vehicle. Anyway, oh, wow. I don't know how we managed to get Mary out there, but we, we got another cow. We had a number of cows over the years. But the, the entrepreneurial thing was mum realized these old dairy cows could raise more than one calf. You know, they had huge udders, an enormous amount of milk. So my job was always to bring in the um, the calves, bring the cow in it in the evening. And we didn't have to milk every day because we didn't really drink that much milk. But when we wanted to get more milk, I'd go and get the cow and bring the calves in and lock the calves up, leave the cow out for the night. It was her night off. You know, we were like the babysitters. <laughs> and, um, and then the next day we'd milk the cow because she'd be so full of milk and then let the calves back onto her. And mum actually made a bit of a business out of it because she raised these steers. She always got steers, which I think the old dairy, the old guy in town probably gave them to her because they didn't want the calves or she didn't pay much for them. And then, you know, 18 months later, she'd sell them off as her sell steers them. and she started creating her own little bank account. Yeah, back back in the day, and and she felt, and that that was fine for her to do that because I know you know there was a certain way that you needed to behave, and um, society and class dictated those kind of things. Look, I think Mum probably my mother was ten. Sorry, my mother's still alive. My father passed away seventeen years ago. Mum was ten years younger than Dad, and I think she already was challenging some of those um, preconceived ideas of how one should behave even by doing her art, but I wasn't aware of that. But I think perhaps she probably had to push a bit to get to do that. I don't think from my father. I think he always encouraged her. And what about the farm life side of things? Was there an expectation that you would work? Oh, we all, and we wanted to, but, yeah, we pitched in and helped. Shearing time was really fun, fond memories of that. And we all worked in the yards, helping push the sheep up, mustering, taking them out. Um, we enjoyed working as a rouseabout or helping clean up in the shearing shed. The shearers are always great people and and we loved the food because it was so different to what mum cooked with because the cook used white flour and we only ever had whole milk flour. <laughs> so we thought the scones and things were like, you know, Christmas. I, I must say I always, we had Hereford cattle. We had more sheep than cattle, but we had, you know, I don't know how many cattle, thousand or something like that. But I love doing the cattle mustering. I'm much preferred working in the cattle yards and I love doing that with dad and I always was on my horse I love doing it with a horse yeah I think I'm the same we grew up with sheep and cattle and I just think there was just this unpredictability and excitement about cattle work that kept you way more on your toes oh, and also when you headed them to a gate they tend to go through it where a sheep you know how they just can run in circles <laughs> with the gate wide open it's like what are you thinking? <laughs> oh, you don't have to contest with that anymore with the sheep. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. So are you, the, the big change for you, I wonder, did you, as, as you're growing up as a child, did you ever think about what you would become and did you dream of, of becoming something in particular? Very much our father always said to we three girls, you must 
study something and get something behind you so that you can always support yourself or always fall back on your own skills if you need to. And, and that was instilled in us. But I always thought that I would end up on the land. And I always, when I finished school, I sort of thought I wanted to go and be a polo groom for a year because I thought I could be around horses and I thought that'd be a bit of fun. And my parents said, no, 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 I don't think that's a good idea. I think they thought if I did that, I might ever go and study. And that wasn't a long-term career, but it was sort of my trying to keep my links on the land. And then I, I did think I would go home for a year when I finished school. And that was the year my parents actually decided to sell their part of the property. And I remember being devastated, thinking, well, what am I going to do now? Because that's where I thought I wanted to end up. But, you know, when you look back, it was very, it was a really important moment for my parents to be rid of any debt and to be able to go on and, and really have another life, which they love building a new garden and new home and, you know, work, still working hard. And it also probably made me think, okay, well, that's not there. What am I going to do now? So I do? went off to uni. <laughs> well, I went off to uni. I I actually got a scholarship to go to Sydney University to do early childhood education. And I was I, I always loved children and I had lots of younger cousins and had done work as a babysitter during school to raise money, you know, done lots of nanny jobs and things like that. But anyway, I, I beat the girl from the country. It sounds so silly, but I actually felt scared about going and living in Sydney and thought I would get lost on the campus at Sydney Uni. Oh. I sort of was saying, oh, no, I don't really want to go there, not really being honest about why not. I went and had an interview at Sydney Uni and this fabulous person who was around the early childhood said, look, there's a great, I, I guess they asked me what I was interested in and I'd done economics at school. I actually did agriculture in the first few years of my high school because I was at the local high school and I loved that as a subject. I wish I'd pursued that. I don't think I was aware that I could do something like that at university. But mm. so anyway, I quite liked economics. I was suggested I went to Canberra to this new course that had been started, which was called a Bachelor of Arts in Secretarial Studies. So I learned shorthand and typing, and it was really set up to work for MPs and to stay in Canberra and work in Parliament. So you could do shorthand and keep up with the notes and, and be an assistant in that sort of capacity. And um, I majored in economics and then I couldn't get out of Canberra quickly enough. <laughs> oh, how interesting. I think that Which it can handy. be sort of batted off as um, not much, those those kind of courses, but it does set you up entirely for life and teach you about the structure of correspondence and the formal way of things. Um, and it, well, that's exactly right. In fact, even in the office today, um, some of the team that I work with call me the chief editor. Mm, I, <laughs> I can pick up typos and um, <laughs> they jump out at me. <laughs> so when did Andrew come into your life? Um, not to my late 20s, really. And it's interesting, I, um, I did a lot of different things in my working life, including travelling overseas. And then I'd come back and I'd been overseas twice and and love traveling. And in that moment, I realized, actually, I really know I want to live in Australia and I love Australia. So that was really great for me. And I got the opportunity to go and work up in far north Queensland for six weeks on a contract in the bicentenary. So it was 1988. That was the year I met Andrew. I didn't meet him in the far northwest, even though, so he's from the Pilbara and grew up in, you know, remote Australia. I had this experience, which a great friend of mine had really encouraged me to go and join her cooking in Kainuna, you know, in a little pub called the Blue Heeler Hotel. And I fell in love with the Outback. It was owned by two pastoralists 
the the pub was and so then I started going out and helping muster and flying to Cloncurry for the cattle sales and it was completely different to anything that I'd grown up with you know just huge numbers and big tracts of land and people getting everywhere in aeroplanes and I loved it and I came back down to Sydney and my mother actually had become friends with Andrew's mother and Jude Andrew's mother had commissioned had had called my mother to commission her to do an artwork because she'd lost her second husband and she saw some of mum's work in an exhibition and loved it and asked her if she would consider doing something for her to commemorate her husband. So actually a really personal commission and a really lovely way for them to get to know each other. And mum was writing to me, you know, it's the day when people still wrote letters, (laughs) saying I've met this fantastic woman and she flies her own aeroplane and she used to live on a station. Mum, knowing all this stuff that I loved, Mm. said I really want you to meet her when you come back down. And mum took me out to see the sculpture and to meet Jude. And Jude said, oh, I'm having a party next week and your parents are coming. Why don't you come with them? And I went, oh, well, I don't think I'll still be here, but thank you so much. Anyway, I ended up going to the party and that's where I met Andrew. And what did you think? What took you about him? I mean, I wasn't taken at all. In fact, it was a stage in my life where I was so sort of happy doing what I was doing and really not interested in, in being involved with anybody else to complicate my life. I'll never forget, we, my father was a very punctual man. So we arrived at the party, let's say it was drinks from 6.30. Well, we arrived on the dot of 6.30. And of course, we were the first people there. Mm-hmm. And I met Andrew, who was still in a dressing gown, setting mm-hmm. up the drinks on the front veranda. And so I walked across and I was embarrassed that we were early, you know, and I just walked across and said, hi, I'm Nicola. Can I help you? Like, that's how we met. So I just pitched in and started helping him set up. And, <laughs> not to um, mention the dressing gown. Not to mention the dressing gown. <laughs> Very Andrew. <laughs> Did he have any connection with the Pilbara at that time? Was he this man that you were so kind of loving the lifestyle of when you were in Far North Queensland? Um, well, no. He, I mean, he was actually living in Sydney, so he was just down for the weekend for his mother's party. He actually had moved from Perth. So this is 1988. It was just after the stock market crash in 87. And he, Andrew had been working in stockbroking and had been in Hong Kong, I think. Well, no, no. He'd been working in Hong Kong and then he'd moved to Sydney and he was heading up a stockbroking firm in Sydney. There was a huge storm that night and we were watching it and I guess talking about, I was probably talking about the experiences I'd had. I didn't necessarily realise the whole thing about the Pilbara that much that night at all. But definitely, I think I really, I fell in love with Andrew when I first went to Mindaroo with him because that's when I really saw that side of him. But before that, he was was like this city boy. Yeah, so fascinating. When was the first time you you went to Mindaroo together? It was about six months later. Um, and Andrew had a client, a Japanese client, Bungo Ishizaki, who was from EIE, and they they owned their own private 727. So, and I'm talking about in 1989. Anyway, wow. Bungo flew us to Learmont, flew us across Australia for a weekend to go to Mindaroo, and that was the first time I went to Mindaroo. Holy moly, wow. Yeah, it was pretty unbelievable. Now a word from today's sponsor. SG Offroad Understand It All. 
They've been stuck on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere with little kids in tow. They've rushed around to get vehicles into servicing, forgotten booked dates and understand the importance of having someone to help take care of the problem. SG Offroad are the little guys gone big. Founded in 2002, they put the humanity back into your vehicle's needs, mixing impeccable automotive care with an incredible empathy for who's behind the wheel and daily life. An ARB stockist with two stores in South Gippsland and a huge range of courtesy vehicles, they're available for their customers no matter what. Whether in their workshops, driveway, stuck in the paddock, or even with electrical issues on the Tanami track. Whether it's leaning against the bull bar for a yarn, or rocking a brightly coloured conversation starting shirt for mental health, there's rarely anything they say no to when it comes to vehicles and those that drive them. Beyond the wheel bearings and the four-wheel drive setups, SG Offroad are more than just mechanics and accessories. They become a slice of people's lives and truly love what they do. SG Offroad. Just get life. Tell, tell me about the Andrew that you saw on Mindaroo Station. Um, well, his favourite outfit when he's up there is to wear shirts with cut-off sleeves. So not really an attractive look, I would say, but he loves it. But, you know, the dirty old hat, the old belt round the shirt with the cut-off sleeves and usually shorts and riding boots because it's so hot up there, mm. you know, and they'd even ride horses in shorts, unbelievable. Um, but just really adept on a ho- brilliant horseman. So that obviously appealed to me a lot. Um, and And just, you know, the thrill seeker that he is and the adventure man to go back to the place where he grew up and to see him just so comfortable, you know, having Billy T down by the Ashburton river and, you know, then helping with a muster or whatever we were doing, you know, I think we were there not working so much as having just a fun weekend, but just seeing him in that land and that landscape. And I think that's the thing that got me when I went to far North Queensland and, and it's what I absolutely love about the Pilbara it sears into your heart to be in such expansive country makes you realise it puts everything into perspective. I don't want to say things are insignificant, but it helps you put mm. things into perspective and makes you realise how vast this land and this world is and that things that might concern you, you know, are, are just a, can just be a breath away. Let, let them go because there's so much more to it. You know, I think your your story of meeting Andrew and seeing that diversity in him is so relatable for so many women who have ended up on the land. I mean, what 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 couldn't be more attractive about that, that you take a, a boy out of the city and you put them in their home environment and they completely change and they're comfortable and I, I think it's I think it's a story that is told many times over in rural Australia. Yeah. yeah. And my goodness, you get some amazing city women that end up in the in the country and they do such an amazing job. They're so adaptable, you know, yeah. when they've oh. got had to make do with so much less and less people around them. And yes, and that's a much the, more simple home. That's the wonderful thing about this greater exposure these days of women living in the country and that they their skills are incredible still. And they get to sort of see the light of the day and continue to utilize them. But for generations before that, that was not recognized um, or known or celebrated as much. Yeah. Yeah. There are more women 
with um, businesses, you know, technology's enabled all sorts of, you know, online businesses and creativity to shine, mm. um, no matter where you live. But it's still, it's still tough. It, there still is a divide, you know, you have to make do with less services and, you know, we do need, that's one of the things that Mindaroo Foundation is really um, working hard to try and breach that divide of access to the arts, to more empowered communities, because, you know, there, there is a, there's still a dearth. Well, let's just touch on Mindaroo Foundation a little bit. I get the feeling that the three things that drive you, yes, are um, communication and children and and the arts, as well as women living in that country life. How does your understanding and your lived experience drive that? And you you obviously have the ability and the ways and means to be able to be a philanthropist in the, in that area. So I'm just so interested to know your thought process on where you see a problem and how you decide what you will do about it. <laughs> well, Mindaroo is really um, a very large foundation now. So if we concentrate on the areas that you just spoke about, I mean, because, you know, we are trying to tackle some of the great, problems facing humanity really with plastics in the ocean and modern slavery collaborate for cancer so about sharing data but if I if I go back to the essence of the, we're going to be 21 years old next year Mindaroo Foundation it started its life as the Australian Children's Trust so at the heart of everything our our goal at the beginning was to enable every Australian child to reach their full potential that was sort of our byline so to speak and then how do you go about enabling that to happen and one of the first initiatives that we had was generation one because if you really want to help a child you have to actually help the family you know it's intergenerational and helping people get into work and you know with generation one it was very much about our indigenous brothers and sisters and first australians that you know are um inexplicably disproportionately represented in every step of disadvantage and not for the want of trying in our country to help. And so then how do you try and tackle these issues in a different way? Because, you know, obviously the way we're doing it at the moment isn't working. And really at the heart of it is that, you know, having grown up in rural Australia and and having spent a lot of time in the country and knowing the people that live and work there, you know, there's huge diversity in any community and no one community, no two communities are the same, different needs, different people. But at every in at every community, there most there are people there that are true leaders and there are people there that actually know what the issues are. But often they don't necessarily have the capacity of how to go about trying to fix that. But the last thing you want to do in the role that Mindaroo Foundation plays is go in and say, oh, here's a problem, here's an answer. It's actually about working out how to move forward with that community or with those people. And, you know, the the most exciting part of the work we do is you meet some incredible people that have ideas for how they think they can improve the lives of others in in one way or another. And you do, you get the opportunity to back that leadership. And, you know, Mindaroo doesn't just say, you know, we like to walk alongside with our partners and with people that we support because we want to learn from them and we also want to make sure that, you know, where where the where we support that it is getting the outcomes that they're hoping for, and we're always interested in speed and scale. I, well, I used to say scale, but now speed. You know, as you get older, we need a bit more speed. <laughs> um, but you know, you want to you you want to support ideas and projects that ultimately could create policy change in the way we deliver services 
and that is very much where my heart is in Australia. I just think there's a lack of long-term thinking about how we approach some problems, and that's partly because of our political cycle, or a lot to do with that. And communities, you know, battle on no matter who's in Canberra, and things get delayed. So if you can empower communities to get on with things and lead by example, then you can take that back and say, okay, here's something we prepared earlier. Why wouldn't we roll this out? Or why can't this continue to be funded? Because it's self-sustaining. You know, also looking at self-sustaining models that created employment opportunities, which is a big problem in rural, you know, in rural Australia. There's lots of services and different programs that can help build a community, but also create employment. And, you know, you know, the flip side for what I'm very involved in with our with Tatarang, which is our private equity company, our private investment company that Andrew and I have, um, you know, we're very involved in the agricultural world on that side as well with the stations and Harvey Beef. So we've got that vertical integration and employment is a big way of helping communities. Yeah, is there so many strings to your bow and Andrew's bow? And I, I just, I, it, it, um, I, I just love it that you have these ideas and you execute them. And there's, there are so many things that can be changed and need to be changed, and you're not afraid of of tackling that. I think it's just so wonderful. Um, I think I've learned a lot about not being afraid from Andrew. <laughs> In what but way? that's good, you know. In well, as an encourager, you know, for someone when we moved to Western Australia which was 26 years ago, for six months. Originally, it was we moved to Western Australia, to Perth for six months while Anaconda was being built and, you know, just to have oversight. And we've stayed, it's been our home ever since. We've had three different homes in 26 years. And when Anaconda, but when Andrew was ousted from that in 1989, it actually created the opportunity for us to set up the foundation. So out of one setback was the seed for equal or greater opportunity. And that's when we started the foundation because he got a payout and we had always agreed that once we'd earned a certain amount of money, we were going to give the rest away. This payout gave us the opportunity to actually say, okay, we're going to start that foundation and create something positive out of this bad experience. But then a year later, we took a year off and traveled actually with our children around the world for eight months, which was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, to have that opportunity is extraordinary, but it's the best education I think any child can get. And realising that there's much more than just Australia. You know, like I'm a very proud Australian, but we also have to look outward and learn from history and um, and look to the future, you know, so you can go to all sorts of different places and be very grateful for what you have. So I think that's an important lesson. But I'm jumping around a lot here. <laughs> oh, no, I, I love it all. I, I did want to ask you about the huge part of you that is not here today, and that is your daughter, Matilda. Can you share a little bit about her? Yes. So um, in 1998, um, we were expecting our third daughter, and we she's the only child we found out the sex and we actually had named her Matilda because I because I had two daughters. I really wanted to know what the third was going to be because I didn't mind. I didn't mind, but I just wanted to be ready, you know. We prepared the girls who were four and five, got a little sister coming. And anyway, she was full term, perfectly formed and born stillborn. She was stillborn. Mm-hmm. And it was such a shock because I actually remember going into my doctor and I had the other two girls in Sydney so 
the doctor that I had here, the obstetrician, hadn't delivered any other children for me. He was a great guy. And he delivered our son, actually, two years later. And I said, oh, it was, it was a Monday morning. And I said, I didn't think I was going to make this appointment. And he said, why not? And I said, well, I haven't felt, I haven't felt the baby move for at least 24 hours. And, you know, you've got children. Mm. you know how they go a bit quiet before they're Mm. born Mm. and they always say oh they go quiet before they're born Mm. he just couldn't you know he was just doing okay we'll just hop up and we'll do the check and looking for the heartbeat and he couldn't find the heartbeat and he sent me down the road to an ultrasound he said oh my machine's obviously broken but at that moment it wasn't till I had the ultrasound but I kind of this feeling came over me anyway it was something that it's one of those things in life that you think I can't imagine anything worse and Mm. I don't know how I'd cope but go back to that resilience or whatever that it's whatever that is within human beings that you are able to pull on something of strength when you have to and you get through but um, I remember in Sydney someone I knew that in a church that I used to go to had a stillborn child and I couldn't speak to them because I didn't know what to say and, and so I sort of just avoided seeing them. Mm. And then that very same thing happened to me. And I understood why, but part of grief causes all sorts of emotions and it and anger can be one of them. You know, you start feeling like, well, why was it me and other people that had babies at the time? And it really does mess with you. But I am I was so lucky that I had two little girls to go home to. So for those people that it's their first child or they don't have another child, to go home, you know, empty arms because my children helped me get through it, really. I had to get up out of bed. But part of grief, you know, you have this brain fog where I used to say to Andrew, you better put clothes out for me. You couldn't even make a decision about what clothes to put on in the, you know, in the early days or in those first few months. How did, how did you break that news to your girls? Oh, well, that was one of those things where you have to rely on your own um judgment and the time because Mm. obviously we were so shocked and then it was what are we going to tell the girls because Mm. and I felt very strongly that they needed to see Matilda because we talked about her and they'd seen me be pregnant and then in fact when we went into the hospital so we had to go home from that ultrasound appointment to get some things and go back in and be put into hospital and go into labor and and give birth Mm. And we didn't tell we didn't tell the girls, obviously. So they saw me take the bag and mummy's going to hospital. So I said, we can't just pretend it didn't happen. So they actually held her and saw her and realised she wasn't there. And then we had a service and we buried her. So um, they went through that journey with us. And I think it, it's interesting, how, amazing how many women reached out to me afterwards once they heard. And people of my mother's generation and even older women who said it had happened to them and they never saw their child and they'd never resolved some of those issues because the babies were just whisked away and they were just told, oh, you know, better you don't see the baby. So I feel I was looked after really very, very well. I I don't have any words to, I'm just so sorry to hear about the the depths of that experience and for you and your family and um I couldn't imagine anything worse but you do speak about it so and and isn't it amazing that you were able to draw on your nurturing ability as a mother in that terrible moment 
for your other children and to do what was right for them in, in in that they got to meet Matilda. I think that's just so unbelievably wonderful and wise and has probably helped you a million fold over the years to come. I Look, I think so. And, you know, I, there were moments where I thought, oh, my goodness, I hope I did the right thing. Little Sophia, little Sophia, she's 27 now, oh. when she was, she did a stint in boarding school, but all my children have done a bit of a stint in boarding school, um, which has been great and they've loved it. And she, <laughs> Matilda's birthday is the 22nd of June, and she snuck, snuck out of boarding school at five o'clock in the morning and went to the cemetery and put flowers on her, on her grave when she was 16, I think she was, when she was 15 or 16. And I was amazed, you know, she'd remembered the date and, and had, because we went to the grave and there were flowers there. And then she said, yeah, mum, I went there. So I was like, well, that's really lovely you did it, but actually you did break the rules. <laughs> and at five o'clock in the morning it might have been dark and mightn't have been safe and all those sorts of things. Mm. But, but you know, I, I spoke about that then. Often there's, there's, it's really I can speak about it without crying. So it's still, it, it's with you forever, that pain. How could it not be? But that was our first, um, we actually supported the Women's and Infants Research Foundation. After that, we actually wanted to find out, you know, another thing of grief is blame. You blame yourself and what did I do wrong? And so we really wanted to understand, try and understand what happened. So we teamed up with Professor John Newnham, who's an incredible medical professional here in Western Australia, who's at um, Princess Margaret Hospital and runs the women's and set up the Women's and Infants Research Foundation, and they do a lot of huge amount of research into what happens in utero and how that affects us later in life, which has really fed sort of those thoughts about Thrive by Five and those how important and critical those years from conception to five years of age are. Mm. They really set up our life trajectory, I... but there was nothing wrong with her. And in fact, one in a thousand children born, there are, there are no no rhyme, no reason. I mean, I came to terms with it as a cot death in utero. Mm. You know, you, it just, you just don't simply know why. Very hard. Do you, is Matilda still a part of your lives in that you celebrate her and speak about her? And yeah, I just wanted to ask that after that beautiful story of your son going to visit Matilda on her birthday, the 22nd of June. We do. I mean, we, I think, you know, here's a strange thing. We published we made a beautiful book about Mindaroo Station, about the history and everything about Mindaroo. And it was almost two years of work by a number of historians and other people. And the day um, the first copy got handed to me, there's a dedication to Matilda in the front of the book. And anyway, the girl that Tanya Hudson, who'd helped really finalise and pull the book together, presented me this book. I was in the office and she presented me this book and said, I want you to have the first copy. And I opened it up. I'm going to start crying now. And <laughs> it was actually the 22nd of June that she handed me that book. Oh. And without even realising, really? I went, oh, my God. And I hadn't actually thought, oh, it's Matilda's birthday today. And I got this book and then opened the – and read the dedication and looked at her and went, you're not going to believe this. I mean, how extraordinary is that? Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. That's her just coming and saying hello. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got to be the godmother of a of an ore carrier of a huge Panamax ship that was um, built and launched in China 
and we named it Matilda. So Andrew and I went up to China for the christening of this ship because every mm. ship, I didn't know this before then, has a godmother and I was the godmother. Mm. I didn't know that yes. either. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so there was uh, the FMG Matilda. And so is it right to say that after this experience that you all lived through with Matilda, that was the impetus for the Children's Trust initially and then what what went on to be Mindaroo Foundation? It sort of all happened around the same time. So um, absolutely Andrew and I had always said that Anaconda had been quite a success story and we had always said once the shares reached a certain price that anything above that price we would give that money away if we ever sold the shares or you know we didn't need it and we were very always very strong that our children didn't need it either you know we didn't want them to inherit vast amounts of wealth because we didn't think it helped help help them set themselves up for life um Mm. you know take can take away motivation or and um anyway so yes the next year and you know so we had a pretty bad year we lost Matilda and then sort of things started Anaconda there were issues with that and so yes the money that came out of Andrew's sort of um, removal from the company was used to set up the foundation and and it was around children and and that research that we'd done with Professor Newnham we'd done that before we set up the foundation but we've continued to support that work. Was it this experience that turned you into an advocate? I think it was you know it was it was the learnings in those first few years because our focus was on children. What happened was people would come with ideas about how to keep kids engaged in school. We tried to concentrate on children leaving school and getting into the workforce. So, you know, or you either study, train or work, you know, don't go on the dole, don't go, you know, you've got to have a pathway. So we were really trying to concentrate on on that cohort. And then how do you keep kids engaged in school? So all sorts of programs. And then why is there disengagement? And the more, I looked at the problems that we were trying to deal with further down the track, the more the science and the evidence and the reading showed that if you concentrate in those early years and invest in those early years and set children and families up for a positive trajectory, then all those other issues tend to fall away. But we, what we do is tend to patch up and spend more money at the other end. So a couple of years ago, we, um, and I'm jumping here ahead, but it has absolutely become the focus. It, you know, it was about children and now it's, for me, become the focus in those early years because you can, it's, it's almost a do or die. The motor neurons that have developed every second with a child and we've developed a TED Talk. I don't know if you got to see that. Yes. The, and your, I've Thrive seen by your, Five TED Talk. Yes, and your press club address. And you've been championing this cause for a long time. You must be getting a little bit fed up with the lack of action. <laughs> well, I think that's um, that's the speed and scale bit. Um, you know, I'm not known for my patience, um, but I've had to. I have. I feel I have tried every avenue um, along a very respectful journey, and you know, I guess I am the product of my upbringing that trying to do things the way one is expected to do them and do them the right way, and I am realizing that you know sometimes you have to shake things up a bit. So. Women for Progress, which we launched um, a few months ago, has sort of taken a number of issues that have been really highlighted. This pandemic has helped highlight where there are cracks in the system. 
and and really shown where we need to pay more attention. And so I think there is an opportunity now where we really have to unite and share our voices, one message, many voices, and that's what Women for Progress is about. And it's really interesting because there's there's some incredible women, if you look at that list, that have come together, and it's by no means a closed book. It's just that we've we've sort of started something and we're, we're really wanting to grow this message. But um, for me, I came from the area around that children are our future prosperity and, you know, forget, you know, the social and emotional problems that we're having are appalling, but it's the economic loss and, you know, it, it's affecting our whole country. But other women are coming on all the, you know, different lenses of where women can make such a difference in the recovery of our economy. And it's just, it's actually a no-brainer. And I think the really exciting part is just in this last few weeks, the number of independent, a number of women that are standing as independents in, in key seats because they realise that their voice is really important. And some of these independent women that have already been in parliament have been some of the more measured and wise counsel, which is what we need going forward. So, you know, for all your listeners here, I just think there are so many women out there in the country that have lived experience that would add so much value to the dialogue, the national dialogue. And I really urge you, if you've ever thought about it or friends have said you should stand for, you should go and stand for parliament, now's the time. And I think independence, you know, our, our party system is a great system, but it's not working. And independence can have that balance of power where they can help lead long-term policymaking decisions. I do want, in finishing, I do want to loop back around to Mindaroo Station. Can you just tell me how it came to be that Mindaroo Station was not, was in the Forest family and then it was not and then it became yours again? A little bit like what happened with my family farm, Gillinghall. Debt is a crippling thing and when you're, you know, year in, year out. So Andrew's father, Don, who is now living with us which is a gift he just I think reached a point where he thought I've I need a break I can't keep doing this and the kids actually tried to buy it back from him but couldn't quite get the money that he was hoping to get again this happened in also happened in 1988 I think Mm. 1998 sorry 1998 so yeah it was a bad year and so it went to auction and it was sold out of the family and it was actually pretty devastating. I remember going to say, going to speak to Don and saying, please don't do this. I think you'll regret it. Because I, I, because of my father, not that I think my father regretted it, but I just thought, Don, don't do this. Anyway, it's the great Australian story because mm. 10 years later, it was a syndicate that bought the station and they actually invested a lot of money into it. They completely transformed it from sheep to cattle, put a lot of infrastructure, yards, fences, waters, spent a lot of money on it and then unfortunately sadly one of the syndicate died and another one wanted out and so they couldn't agree on a price so apparently they said okay well we'll send it to the auction and they had a reserve and if it didn't make the reserve they'd buy their partners out and if it made the reserve they'd sell and they'd all be happy and you can imagine at this stage we could afford to buy it back but Andrew absolutely said no I've moved on I'm not interested publicly told never we went never went back and had a look 
he meanwhile had other people looking for him, putting it all together, didn't have one but two people at the auction. And we sat in the car outside in the street with mm. Andrew's brother, David, and his father while the auction went on. And Andrew had two phones to these two people in case one went down, you know, like there was, <laughs> everything yeah. was covered. And it got knocked down to us at the reserve price. We had to wait till papers were signed and everything. And then when we went up into the um, into the auction room, one of the vendors who we knew quite well said, oh, g'day, g'day, mate. Look, you're a bit late. It's sold. <laughs> and then he looked at Andrew and Andrew shook his hand and said, yeah, mate, I'm the buyer. And oh, honestly, he was, and he actually was so gracious. He gave Andrew a huge hug and said, I'm so pleased. But I think, you know, if you think about it, if they knew, you know, we have a friend that had a big joke, said, oh, my God, it'd have to be the best property player in Australia. You know, <laughs> Andrew's going to pay what Andrew's going to pay whatever it takes to buy it back. And so uh, we were lucky to get it for that price. But it's been uh, such a restorative, joyous thing to do. And now you, to all intents and purposes, are, um, are leading the ship there. Tell me how that's come to be as well and what that means to you. You know, it is, I mean, I'm a journalist, but I do see it a little bit in the full circle. You do have your, you, you're working on the lance, what you always wanted to do. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, Andrew, you know, we had the station back and it was in, Having said a lot of money being put in, it needed a hell of a lot of um, improvement. And, you know, I'd never worked on stations really. And we were living in Perth and busy, but we had different people coming and helping and managers and trying to work out how we move forward. And actually, when we bought it back, there'd been drought for several years and the cattle were, you know, I remember crying in the yards. They were so poor and mustering hadn't necessarily been done properly. So there were, cows coming to the yards with a wiener and a calf and there were mm. mickey bulls everywhere and you know the place needed a lot of cleaning up so we had different people coming and going and big musters and quite exciting because there were quite a few wild cattle and and then andrew was busy with fortescue and i asked him would you give me the imprimatur to to help lead this because I felt it wasn't my place. And if I go up there, I couldn't really walk into the shed and ask what was going on because it, I didn't feel like it was my place. And so it was then, I was then made the manager. And I went and set up an advisory board straight away because I thought, well, I, you know, I, I need some good advice on how we move forward with the cattle and how we develop waters and all the things we do. And the first thing we did was I employed a new manager and fam, wife and child that moved over from Queensland and had great experience with AA Co. And that was a really great step for us because we looked at the place completely and worked out what we needed to do to carry more cattle and look after the cattle we had and improve the bloodlines. And I went and visited, um, I went over to Bow Desert and visited mm. Ewan Murdoch to look at the ultra black bulls. And we, we installed great yards from... Um, Toowoomba, trying to remember the name. Anyway, you know, the round, you know, we had to build new infrastructure. So we got great advice on this is the best thing to do. And it was really fun. I was on a steep learning curve. And we then actually expanded and have bought more stations and realised we, and then we bought Harvey Beef. So we had the, um, you know, the abattoir at the end of the line and realised all the while, we always talked about drought proofing and really that's what we've done we've bought other properties in different rainfall areas and that are on the way to the market 
And it's taken us a long time because those properties don't come up very often, but we've managed to acquire some great properties along the way. And then I always had an aversion to feedlots or backgrounding. Andrew and I both did said, never do that, never do that. But actually, it's a very important part of the supply chain. And so we've just opened Coogin Downs, which is, um, which is really a state-of-the-art backgrounding property that we've built. So well, it's pretty Nicola, exciting. Yes, it is all so exciting. I just there's so many people that follow with admiration and interest, and it's it's such a fascinating story. So I I thank you so much for for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've listened to this interview over and over and over again. There are so many messages within. What a full life she's leading. And despite her fortunate position, which has come about through lots of determination and lots of hard work, I find this story to be so inspirational. We were very lucky to be able to spend this time with Nicola and so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did, as I enjoyed recording it. Please feel free to share this episode amongst your networks with a simple screenshot while you listen to the podcast. We're hoping to reach even more people in 2022 and this story is sure to have universal appeal to women and men everywhere. You will be happy to know that the autumn issue of Grazy Her has marched its way to the printers and it'll be arriving in your mailboxes and local stockists at the beginning of March. You'll see more of Nicola in the issue alongside a swag of other brilliant women. Make sure you never miss an issue by subscribing at grazyher.com.au. Thanks for listening and we'll be back with you next week with another Life on the Land story. Mm-hmm.